0: Well, this morning we are going to begin the book of Esther. Tom asked me, you know, with the way this week went, how how I had time to study. And I said, well, actually, while Cheryl was resting in the hospital I was there, I just had my laptop and away we go. So we're going to cover seven or eight chapters, I think, this morning. I kid you. I would like to read through the first two chapters just to get a sense of where we're going. This book is different Really, than any book we've studied for a number of reasons. But even as I, several weeks back, was was reading ahead and just thinking, I'm just going to read Esther. It's ten chapters. It's not a long book. I was reading through and asked the Lord, "What are we going to do with this?" Well, I mean, it's a it's a great story. It's a great story. But, but how do we apply this? What, what, what is the message in here for us? And I, so I've been thinking about it while we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah both. I've been thinking about Esther. Well, let's read the first couple of chapters and, and let's see what the Lord has. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And you might want to know this. That's Xerxes. Historically, Ahasuerus, Xerxes is the same Monarch, the same king reigning from 485 to 465 BC. But in those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, which is in Persia, Iran, in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, a hundred and eighty days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done in according to the law. There was no compulsion, which I think is funny. Um, there was no compulsion, for the king had so given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. In other words, party it up. Drink until you're flat on the ground. Let's go for it. Queen Vashti was also She also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. What you have here is Ahasuerus, Xerxes, having a massive bachelor party, in essence. Probably a pretty wild affair, wild ordeal. And his wife and the women, they had their own banquet going on because, you know, the men really didn't want the women there because of what was going on here, all right? On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and I'm thinking it took seven days? Seven days? <laughs> He commanded Mehuman, Vista, Harbona, Viktha, Avaktha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Let me show you my trophy, he's saying. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Xerxes was known to have a temper, historically. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times... For it was the custom of the king to so speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. Karshina, Sithar, Admata, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Well, in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the peoples who are in the provinces, all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look down with contempt on their husbands by saying King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And I wonder how Memucan's marriage was at the time. Think about that. Verse 18, This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. I don't want my wife turning on me. And there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. My wife included, he might say. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script and every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Well, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. I think the implication is he felt bad. Then the king's attendants who served him said, well, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. I'll take his mind off her. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Pretty them up. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jear, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Well, it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. And when the turn of each young lady came to go in to King King Ahasuerus, after the end of her twelve months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as followed, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Is this ridiculous? (laughs) The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abahail, the the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything. Uh, except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her that she had done when under his care. In those days... While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Vigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Great story. Let's pray and you can be on your way. No, I'm kidding. Let's pray. Father, would you give us insight again into this this new chapter, Father, in your word, but a new chapter in our life is a fellowship. We have seen, Lord, and I believe that each, each step we take as a fellowship is new. And it amazes me, Lord, the way you touch this body as we walk. That with each new book, even that we open up, there has been something fantastic about the application to it, us as individuals, Lord, and to this church fellowship. And we expect nothing less. Not because we have this great right to expect it, Lord, but because you are God. You are amazing. You are wondrous, and we worship you. So, Father, we seek to see more in Esther and to understand why you chose to include this book in your Bible. Would You show us that, Father, and more would You speak to our spirits this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. John T. Elson is dead. On September 7, 2009, this quiet, studious man passed away at the age of 78. Now you may not be familiar with the name, but John T. Elson served as editor for Time Magazine for more than three decades. And if you, if you were alive at the time, or wandering around at the time, or paying attention at the time, April 8th, 1966, you would have known who John T. Elson was. Some of you may even recall with the cover issue of Time Magazine that spring. With Passover and Easter right around the corner, Elson had a cover story for the magazine that literally shocked the nation. Upsetting countless thousands of people, it garnered 3,500 letters to the editor. Along with Time's biggest newsstand sales in more than 20 years prior. The cover itself was the most simple the Time had ever put out. It was a completely black background and written in bold blood red letters on the front of it was the question, Is God Dead? Well, John T. Elson can now finally answer that question for himself. But I wonder, I wonder if there were any Jews in Esther's day living there in Persia who secretly asked the same question. Is God dead? Is He even there anymore? They're out of the land. They're in Persia. A completely different lifestyle. All the glory days of Israel seemingly far behind Becoming, with each passing year, a distant memory. And the question must have come to somebody, is God dead? Is He even there? In fact, following the centuries of what's called the diaspora, the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people, it's not surprising many Jews have come to that conclusion. God is dead. Or maybe He's moved on to another planet, but He certainly isn't interacting with His people anymore. If he isn't dead, he's gone silent. Guy have the name of Jack Miles, wrote a book I picked up several years ago. I was in a bookstore and, and wandering just through the religious books section. I'm always curious to see what's being written. And there was, there was a book there called God, a Biography. white book, but just kind of like the Beatles' white album, actually. It just said in black lettering on the front of it, God, a Biography. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And I started flipping through this. What this author did, and it caught my attention, was he, he said, I'm going to take... God as a as a character in a novel. We look at the Bible not from an historical perspective, but from a literary perspective, and see how it unfolds. And the author, looking at the Hebrew Scriptures, reasons that what begins in action ends in silence. Then, as you open up the Word of God, God is the one there, and He's the one speaking, and He calls all things into existence. But as time goes on, well, let me tell you what He said. After action yields to speech in the Hebrew Bible, speech yields in its turn to silence. Now, the Hebrew Bible, you need to understand, is different in in a certain way than what we know of as the Christian Bible. Oh, it's the same books in what we call the Old Testament. Same books, but different order. In the Hebrew Bible, what the Jewish people call the Tanakh, there are three sections in it. The Torah, the first five books, the Nevi'im, which means the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which means the writings. And it's organized in that fashion. It's not necessarily even by timeline, but it's by category. So you have Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Ketuvim is the writings, and that's where it's more about, the, the not the history, but, but what's happening to the people of Israel. A lot of it is after They come back into the land after all the glory. Esther's there in the Ketuvim. But Miles writes this. He says, God's last words, he speaks to Job. In the Hebrew Bible, Job would be the last book. The human being who dares to challenge not his physical power, but his moral authority. I'm sorry, let me correct something. Job is not the last book, but um, it's in that last section. And he said, within the book of Job itself, God's climactic and overwhelming reply seems to silence Job. We'll get to Job at the first of the year, Lord willing. I mean, it's a wonderful response of God to this man Job who spends some 37 chapters questioning God, and the last few, God says, All right, you want some questions? Let me ask you a few. And it's awesome. But Miles writes, reading from the book of Job forward, we see that it seems to be Job who has somehow silenced God. God never speaks again. And He is decreasingly spoken of. In the book of Esther, a book in which, as in the book of Exodus, His own chosen people face a genocidal enemy, He is never so much as mentioned. In effect, the Jews surmount the threat without His help. Well, it's true that the distinguishing characteristic of the book of Esther is the mysterious absence of God. You will not find Him mentioned once by name or inference in this entire book. He doesn't speak a single word, nor has He even spoken to in prayer. In fact, later on, Esther's going to call for some help. She's going to say, well, you tell the people, tell my people to fast. But she doesn't even there say, tell them to fast and pray. She says, tell him to fast. I'm going to fast with my maids. And we'll hope that things turn out well. I mean, there's no mention anywhere. There's no appearance at all of, of, of God. At least it doesn't. there doesn't seem to be. You won't even find a reference to Esther in the New Testament. You see why I asked the question earlier, what do we do with this book? How do we... I mean, it's here... It's part of the great book. What do we do with this? Now, what Miles shares again about Esther is true from a certain perspective, although he admits he's looking at God literally as opposed to historically. The problem is to make a claim from action to speech to silence, as Miles does, you would have to ignore history because historically the Hebrew Scriptures do not end in silence. Laid out in more of a chronological fashion, the last book we know historically was written was Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, the last words spoken are from the Lord to His people. He says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite this land with a curse. Period. End of the Hebrew Scriptures. The last word, just as the first word, belongs to God. But Esther's in there somewhere with a complete absence, so it seems, of God. Why does God include a book in Scripture that doesn't seem to include God? Let me give you a couple of things to note right up front. Number one, you need to recognize that the people chose their absence from God. The people chose their absence from God. The Lord warned and warned and warned His people. In fact, very clearly, a thousand years earlier. And then across the years, continued to bring warning to them of what would happen if they chose not to be in His presence. Which, by the way, you can choose to do. I can choose to do. Even as believers, we can choose to quench the Spirit and step out of the presence of God. Non-believers walk constantly with a lack of awareness of the presence of God in this world. Until something happens, until some circumstance, of course, I'm getting ahead of myself, but until they see something that makes them stand up and take notice. In the Talmud, which is the Jewish rabbinical commentary, it's very important to the Jews, it asks this question, where do we find Esther in the law? And the answer is given in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Why don't you turn over there for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 31, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then My anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide My face from them, and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, it is not because our God, or or is it not because our God is not among us, that these evils have come upon us? Verse 18, But I will surely hide My face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods." Another distinction in the book of Esther is it's the only post-exilic book, that is the only book following the exile in the Hebrew Bible of the Jewish people living outside of the land. It's the only one. Every other book speaks to either the people living in the land, or in the case of Daniel, it's before they return to the land. Esther is the only one that gives us a glimpse of the Jewish people living in a foreign land. And so we see this interesting book Remember that the story of Esther it takes place after the Jews, after they have the Jews in Babylon and Persia have received the right to go back. In fact, these Jews in the book of Esther are for the most part there by choice, because they could, if they wanted to, they could return. We know in 538 BC Cyrus decreed permission to return under Zerubbabel. We saw that in the book of Ezra. Esther didn't become queen until 479 BC. So, what is that? Some 50 to 60 years after the decree was given to the Jews, you can return, these Jews are still living in Persia. And as we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, most of the Jews chose to stay right there, outside of the land. And by so choosing gain, they chose their absence from God. They chose to remain where they were, to be secular and not to return when they could have returned. They they could have been back there in the land of Judah, back in the holy city, back near the temple, hearing from the prophets. But Esther, Mordecai, and all of their company chose Persia and remained in Persia. And in so doing, they chose their absence. My friends, when you choose absence from God, it is always hard to hear from Him. Why doesn't God speak to me? What choice have you made? Do you want to be in His presence? Because if you choose not to be in His presence, why should you think that you would hear from Him? And yet, ironically, so many in our world go, Well, I've never heard God talk to me. He's not going to unless you choose Him. Why should He? Remember why Jesus taught in parables? Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. He said, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears, with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Here's the deal. If you want to see, if you want to hear, if you want to be healed, come to me. But many choose that absence. There's that old saying, I'm sure you've heard it before, if God seems far away, guess who moved? It wasn't the Lord. But maybe you haven't chosen His absence and you're still having a hard time hearing Maybe you're one who says, look, I've been faithful. I I trust the Lord. I've been doing my best to serve. I've been trying to stay close to the Father, and yet I'm still not hearing. Maybe you're like David, the man after God's own heart who said in Psalm 10, verse 1, why do you stand afar off, Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or maybe you're like Jesus. Huh? Jesus who in a real theology puzzler questioned God's presence himself. Now I'm not on the line of heresy here just listen to me. Mark 15:34 as Jesus hung on that cruel cross at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I'm here! Where are you? Jesus cried from the cross. Why? Why does He do this? By the way, as long as we're quoting this amazing cry from the cross, we've got to understand something. Jesus is not just talking out of His head. He's not just talking from emotion and pain. Where are you, Father? I can't see you! What's going on? Jesus is very specifically quoting Scripture. Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does He do this? He does it personally. Actually having experienced the absence of God on the cross. I truly believe this. That when Jesus was on the cross, that God had to Be absent from Jesus. Had to be distanced for the first time and only time in all eternity. He had to be distanced from his son. Why is that? Habakkuk chapter one verse thirteen tells us, "Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness." And on the cross, we're told Second Corinthians five twenty one, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin." On our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin on the cross. God cannot look on wickedness. And so there is His Son. Who He had never been separate from before. The Son who had never been completely separated from the Father in that moment, taking our sin, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt it personally, but it's also done, it's also spoken prophetically. Because Jesus was owning Psalm 22. He was saying as if to you and to me right now this morning, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gang, read Psalm 22. It's about me. It's my psalm. And if you read through it, I'll just give you two verses. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Wow! Amazing prophecy. Absolutely specific. Couldn't be connected to any other person in history. All those things. And Jesus says, Psalm 22, personally, prophetically, and my friends, poignantly, poignantly, Jesus binds His feelings of separation. Listen to me. He binds His feelings of separation and absence to you and to me that Jesus could actually say God in the flesh Emmanuel God with us could actually say I know what it's like to feel the absence of God I understand when you are not sure if God is there I know when you feel alone and you think that God is not listening or you think that God is not present I know those emotions I understand those feelings especially in the hard times I know I get it But there's yet another reason for God's apparent absence here in Esther. Not only is it that the people chose their absence from God, but secondly, people cherish, listen to me, people cherish the presence of God more when He's quiet. I mean, this is a stunning thought. Consider the Jewish people. They had God's presence. Cloud by day. Fire by night. They followed through the wilderness. Great signs. Parted seas. Water from the rock. Manna from heaven. And they really had a hard time paying attention when God spoke. They rebelled against Him constantly. They ignored Him. He gives His Word. They don't read it. He gives them festivals to celebrate. They don't keep them. And for hundreds of years, literally from Deuteronomy all the way up to the present time of of, of the book of Esther for over a thousand years, they they just didn't do it. What do we see happen in Ezra and Nehemiah? We see a new devotion. We see a people who only hear from God through the prophets. They're not seeing the great miracles, the wonder signs, the incredible things, but man, they are gathering they are hungry just what was it last week the week before as we were looking at the closing of of Nehemiah the people gather to celebrate and they listen for six hours to the teaching of the word and then they worship and devote themselves for six more hours all in the silence of God all at a time where, where God is not present at least like He was before why is that? because there is something about God's silence that brings a cherishing a hunger a love a passion out of us makes us want him more it makes us hungry for him i think there's something to this game when the bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and isn't it faith it, that is the very thing that we have learned that god wants to nurture in our lives he wants us to be a people of faith maybe god really does know what he's doing when he's quiet when He's not speaking. Maybe in the silence and the seeming absence, He's nurturing something in us of eternity. And that is the language of faith. You want to know when when Cheryl took notice of me? for the first time really took notice of me? It's when I stopped taking notice of her. It was. When I stopped chasing her, when I stopped pursuing her, when I gave up the ghost, as it were... The phone rang, and there she was. And she realized what she might lose. (laughs) Listen, it doesn't mean just because I wasn't calling her. There was about a two-week period of time in our relationship where I said, okay, I'm not going to call. I'm just moving on. It doesn't mean that during that time, I wasn't still fully aware of her, thinking about her, taking note of her, But it took that to nourish that sense of cherishing in her. And God does that with us. My example is silly and romantic. God's example is powerful, gang. When He is silent, He draws faith out of us. Jesus said, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. There's where the blessing is. God in the silence. His presence when we don't see, when we're not feeling, when we're not sure, but we know that we know that we know. How do we know? By faith. We know he's truly there. Victor Buxbazan, who wrote a fantastic little book called The Gospel in the Feast of Israel. He said, The story of Esther is a fitting tribute to the God of an exiled nation. Without a temple or a priesthood, without a prophet or even a great spiritual leader, yet its people are deeply conscious of the divine watch care over them. He's drawing out their devotion. He's drawing out that sense of, of cherishing. And I need to say to you all, regardless of their perception, regardless of our perception, God is there. God is there. We need to realize that sometimes it is the silence that develops the longing. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. He's there. Well, God may be silent in Esther, but He is not absent, not by any means. His signature is all over this great little story. Let me quickly show you where, number one, three things to see here, God is evident in a hidden persona. God is evident in a hidden persona. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. It tells us He, speaking of Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no mother or father. Interesting, Esther had another name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. It has two meanings. If you're a note taker, it means the myrtle tree. The myrtle tree. Uh, the myrtle tree has blossoms that resemble a twinkling star, and I point that out because there's a Persian name, Satera. That some scholars say Esther, Satera, Esther, Satera. Maybe that's where Esther comes from because Satara literally means star. So maybe there was just kind of a jump from the myrtle tree with the little star-like blossoms to Esther, Satera, who the name in the Persian means star. But I don't think so, so you can just scratch that out of your notes. <laughs> so, Hadassah doesn't just mean myrtle tree, though. It also means something else we talked about just last week. It means joy. It means joy. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there is a deep joy that resides in the Hebrew heritage, even for those outside of the land, even for those in the place of absence. But for some reason, she's given a second name. A name, again, I don't personally believe was Persian at all. She's given the name Esther. Why is it not Persian? Because it has a, a different meaning in the Hebrew. Esther's name in the Hebrew means, I am hidden. I am hidden, which is perfect for her because this Jewish maiden turned queen of Persia in the story before us is hidden. She is a secret Jew. She comes into the harem and into the presence of King Ahasuerus and becomes Esther the queen and she's a Jew. And nobody knows. This hidden one, I am hidden, her name speaks. For in verse 10 of chapter 2, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. But you may have guessed this, there's a greater hiddenness there in Esther, the book. And in this time, a truth that requires the eyes of faith to truly see. And that hiddenness, gang, is the invisible but certain hand of God. God is evident in the hidden persona. Secondly, God is evident in the hand of providence. In the hand of providence. He is at work among His people. He's protecting and providing for them. He's taking care of them, even while they are absent from Him, living in a foreign land. How do you know? How do you know God is there, even when it seems like He isn't? Let me give you one thing to be encouraged by and to consider, and that is providence providence how do you know God is, is there when it seems like he isn't Psalm 121 Psalm 121 the psalmist writes if I can get there I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come from my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth he will not allow your foot to slip He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That's the point, gang. Yes, they're in Persia, but God is wide awake and has not forgotten His people. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul." The Lord will guard your are going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. Providence. Providence. Now, consider this. It's important as we look at the whole book of Esther. You Bible students may recall as we journeyed through Ezra and Nehemiah, we looked very closely at portraits of the Holy Spirit. Ezra, a picture, his name meaning helper, a picture of the Holy Spirit and his work in, in our spirits and in the, who we truly are. Ezra, that picture of the building of the temple and the temple, a portrait really of our spirits, and how the Holy Spirit works with us. Nehemiah, whose name means comforter, showed us the presence of the Holy Spirit in our souls. That is in our reason, in our intellect, the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us and, and leads us and guides us, spirit and soul. But in both cases, in both books, we're talking about God dealing with His people inside Israel. In the land. They're in Judah. In Jerusalem. Near the temple. But Psalm 46 verse 10 says the following. Cease striving and know that I am God. Listen. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Not just in the land of Israel. Not just there near Jerusalem. Esther, this book... Unlike Ezra, who reveals the Spirit working in our spirits, Nehemiah, the Spirit working in our souls, Esther is a picture gang of the Holy Spirit at work providentially in our physical lives, even when we're outside the land. The way the Spirit. Have you ever thought about this, some of you? I, let me use Spencer as an example, because he's, he's the most kind of evident one to me. For years and years and years and years and years of Spencer's life, he was not a believer in Jesus. But God knew he would be. And God kept him. The hand of providence was still there guiding him because God knew where he would be. How about you? Why did you ever come to faith in Jesus? Do you realize that God's hand of providence was moving physically in your life to bring you to a point to motivate you? I'm not saying He forced His will on your will. I'm not saying you didn't have any choice. I'm saying the hand of providence was there to the point where finally one day you woke up and said, I believe. And in that moment, God was able to then pour His Spirit into your soul and spirit and to begin to work fresh and new in a way you couldn't have imagined before that moment. But I'll tell you what, He was still at work before that moment. He was still moving His hand of providence. Even when you can't hear God speaking, even now as, as a believer in Jesus, you don't have to look far to see Him moving. To know that He is still caring for you, looking out for you. Now, I know I've used this example exhaustively, but how is it possible the nation of Israel is even a presence in the world today? Hand of Providence. How, how could it be? other than the hand of God on His people, that in 1948 Israel sprung up again. That a dead language came back to life. That this people are an actual nation again. It's the hand of providence. And I'm going to say this There are those who might be upset by it, but anyone who looks at the miracle of Israel's rebirth and resurgence as a viable nation without seeing the hand of providence involved is simply not looking with the eyes of faith. Well, that's a little brash, Pastor. Okay. I think we need to turn to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. Where Paul... Rav Paul in the Hebrew, the Apostle Paul in the Christian scriptures says the following Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Is that clear? Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, Paul writes... There has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if And he's not talking about the church here, gang. He's not talking about Jews who have come to faith in Jesus. Read on. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened just as it is written God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not ears to hear not down to this very day and David says let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever and so here's Paul's conclusion I say that they did not stumble so as to fall did they? who's he talking about? who's he talking about? Israel, And let's be more precise. He's talking about hardened Israel. Hardened Israel. Unbelieving Israel. Israel who has not yet accepted Mashiach. Messiah, Jesus. And he says, But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Note this game. The Spirit of God has not yet been received in the spirit of His people Israel. Now there are Messianic Jews. There are those, obviously, who have come to faith in Jesus. Well, guess what? They're no longer just Israel. They're now the church. But Israel proper has not yet received the Spirit. They have not yet accepted Yeshua as their Messiah, but the hand of providence is still at work. And that's the point here the hand of providence is still on His people. Which is why they're a nation and why they have survived. Not because of the IDF. Not because of the great air force. Not because of their nuclear arsenal secret, though it is supposed to be. But because God's hand of providence protects His people and will until He accomplishes all that He has said He would accomplish. Well, Okay, Rick, so are you saying that the Holy Spirit works providentially in the lives of non-believers? Yes! That's the point. John 16 8 says He, speaking of the Spirit when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Good news. If you have been praying for friends or family for years, hoping that they will come to faith in Jesus, good news. You have a partner in the Holy Spirit who is working to convict them of sin. A hand of providence in their life who is trying to move them to a place of belief in Jesus Christ. With unbelievers, with believers, the hand of providence is present. Providence is the essence of the Book of Esther. This story and one of the number one reasons why it is in Scripture, why God included it in the Bible, I'm convinced, is He wants to see us. He wants us to see how He moves providentially, not speaking great words, doing great acts, but He just wants to see what it means to walk in faith while He provides quietly even as it seems behind the scenes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, a powerful verse, God works all things after the counsel of His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. When we don't see Him, when we don't hear Him, when we're not witnessing His power directly, remember this, He still works all things after the counsel of His will. His ultimate purpose is accomplished, and you can be sure He's behind it. Well, this all sounds great. Looking at the book of Esther, but you still haven't really proven to us the hand of providence. How do we really know God is there? Well, there's a third place that we can look that I'll just point out this morning before we conclude, and it's fascinating. God is evident in the Hebrew print. God is evident in the Hebrew print. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. When the king's edict... Which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Did you see it? Well, of course not. You don't know Hebrew. Neither do I. But if we did, and we were reading in Hebrew, we would see something amazing. Something hidden there. If we were reading, we would notice a four letter acrostic in this sentence. The first letter, reading right to left, which is how you read Hebrew, the first letter of each word in the sentence. If you were Jewish and you were reading this and you were paying attention, you might notice something. It spells out the Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Now let me make sure you all get this and you're following me. If we were reading this in Hebrew, four words making up this sentence. The first letter of each word in the Hebrew is YHWH, Yahweh. His name embedded in the scriptures. Embedded there in that verse. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> That's cute, Rick. It's a coincidence, right? I mean, it's got to be a coincidence. The rabbis say coincidence is simply not a kosher word. Let me ask you, would it be coincidental if it happened more than once? Well, uh, yeah, it could still be. Co- How about more than twice? how about more than three times because not only in chapter 1 verse 20 but in chapter 5 verse 4 in chapter 5 verse 13 and in chapter 7 verse 7 the name Yahweh is hidden in the verse in acrostic and come back Wednesday night I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about what that really looks like what do you mean in acrostic it has that look we're going to really lay that out and look at it but you need to know in those four verses hidden in the Hebrew words are the actual letters spelling out the name of God guess what? The name of God is written in the book of Esther. It's there. But He wants you to look for Him. That's the point. He's here. But He's saying to you and to me, I I want you to look for me. I want faith. I want you to want me. Is that an old cheap trick song? I want you to want me. Yeah, it is. Anyway, that's God. I want you to want me. To want to be in my presence. Note this, Esther chapter 7. Quickly skip over there. Chapter 7 and verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who would presume to do this? Ahasuerus has just found out about Haman's plot to eradicate the Jewish people. A plot very similar to that of Pharaoh's. Okay. In this verse, there is another acrostic. It's not Yahweh. It is the acrostic of the name of God that spells out I am. That I am. Why is that significant? Well, it's fantastic because it's the same exact name God gave to Moses at the burning bush when another man was trying to eradicate his people. Amazing. And all five of these hidden names are well established by rabbis quoted in the Jewish Talmud. You could go back and read the Talmud and they talk about it all over the place. God's name is there in Esther it's one of the reasons Esther is accepted as an inspired book because his name is present but it doesn't just stop there Proverbs 25 verse 2 says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter but the glory of kings is to search out a matter and you know what I would love us to be a fellowship of kings and queens royal people because we search out a matter because we are looking for God in the most quiet and seemingly absent of times we are those who are saying God's here I know He's here God where are you? Lord, reveal Yourself, that we might be in Your presence. Well, if you keep digging, you'll find in chapter 1, verse 3, embedded in that verse, the name Mashiach. Mashiach, the letter spelling out Messiah. You'll find in chapter 4, verse 2, the name El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. And I think this is wonderful. In chapter 4, verse 17, you find Yeshua, Jesus. Even the name of Jesus given in the book of Esther. If you want to, by the way, study this more on your own, Yaakov Ramsel, R-A-M-B-S-E-L. Yaakov Ramsel has written three wonderful books. Actually, I think he's probably written more. But he's written The Genesis Factor, His Name is Jesus, and Yeshua. And in these three books, this, this Jewish Christian, this Messianic believer in Jesus, shows how Yeshua is throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And shows through all this. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to look at. The point is this: God's signature is all over this little book. God's name is here in the Hebrew, embedded directly in the Hebrew print. Whether you see Him or not, God is here. Whether we choose the absence or cherish the presence, God is here. God is here. He said in the scroll of the book it is written of me, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7. He, he said, Jeremiah 29:13, "You will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Come looking. The book of Esther is an invitation by the Lord to come look for me, to come develop a deeper faith in me, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am here." My friends, recognizing and responding to the presence of God is a heart issue. It is not a fact issue. It's not even a truth issue, although the facts and the truth are all around us. It's a heart issue. It's the entire point of our faith. That God would change a heart, not just a head. That He would move in our spirits, not just our souls or our flesh. To know He's here. To be aware of that, whether we see Him or not. To hear His voice, whether audible or not. To trust in His providential moving in spite of our circumstances. And Cheryl was in the hospital. She's lying there and, and the nurse's aide came in. This was after the surgery. It was the first day. And she came in and was asking us some questions. And we were in the middle of the conversation, actually, when she came in about how we were going to take care of our kids. And Cheryl was talking about all these kids. And she said, you know, probably thinking we were Mormon, how many kids do you guys have? And we said, well, we have six. But we have you know, a family in our church who has more. So, <laughs> and, and she began to ask, found out that we had just recently adopted the three kids. Now, I'm, I'm, I want to tell you what she said and how Cheryl responded, which I thought was just great. I'm just sitting there Brr. She said, wow, you guys must be going to heaven. Which I just kind of went... What? Well, yeah, but, but the two things are actually not related the way you think they are. Cheryl said, yeah, it was great, she's in pain, she's lying in her bed, we are going to heaven, but not for that reason. It's not because of what we've done. And the nurse's aide said, well, I don't know how else you get to heaven. And Cheryl, I just, I was going, oh, here it comes. <laughs> you just set her up. And Cheryl goes, simple, you just believe in Jesus. I was like, yes. You now I'm over there studying. And the nurse's aide said, what if you've done bad things? And Cheryl just said, it doesn't matter. And then I think she fell asleep. The truth is, your salvation and my salvation is not based on what we've done. Any more than Esther's salvation or Mordecai's salvation is based on what they are about to do, their salvation was not based on them at all. It was based on the grace of God. The hand of providence moving, the mystery of salvation has come to us sometimes through a hidden but always present God. 1 Peter 1.10 As to this salvation, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I mean, the mystery was so wonderful that the prophets didn't get it and the angels didn't get it. But we got it in Jesus Christ. That God's been here all along. And he planned it out from the beginning. And so we begin the book of Esther. I pray not as another book for study, but another opportunity to cherish the Lord in our faith, to have that great that faith expand, not as an intellectual pursuit, please, but as another opportunity to choose to be in his presence even in a world that largely ignores his presence, as in Persia of the days of Esther. Is God dead? On the contrary, to what Mr. John T. Ellison proposed. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let's pray. Father, I just marvel at You, Lord. What a wonder You are. And what a joy it is, Lord, to to see You. I love the surprises, Father. I love how you you jump out from around the corner and say, I'm right here. And how it encourages and spurs our faith. How it deepens our our love. Lord, we do. We cherish you. We long for you. We, to a person who believes in you this morning, we long for the moment when we are in your presence in every way, shape, and form. That we are looking with with our eyes at, at the Father. Son and Spirit there in heaven that we see You on the throne. But until then, Lord, give us eyes of faith. Bless these eyes of faith, Father. Help us to see You and to hear You and to know You are here. And when we're doubtful, when we're hurting in times of trouble, Father, when it seems to us that You're absent, I just pray, Lord, keep us. Keep your people. Keep us in such a way that people who don't believe in you would still see you in our lives. And they themselves would be changed. God bless your name. We pray in Jesus' name.